It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. Quentin Tarantino's 1994 film, Pulp Fiction, is a cult classic. So it got a lot of attention when the filmmaker announced that he planned to auction off NFTs from the film, including scanned copies of script pages for seven scenes that didn't make the final cut. We've taken the original pages, digitized the original pages, and like I said, they're full of dialogue that was changed, new stuff, stuff that I dropped later. Uh, like, for instance... Uh, the character that John Travolta plays, Vincent. For the whole six months of writing, his name was Edgar Vega. It got unwanted attention from Hollywood studio Miramax, who's trying to stop Tarantino from selling the NFTs, suing him for breach of contract, copyright, and trademark infringement. Joining me is Lance Koontz, a partner at Claris Law. Despite all the hype and the millions of dollars NFTs are being sold for, a lot of people don't understand what they are and why they're so valuable. So an NFT is a non-fungible token that's distinguished from a fungible token like Bitcoin or Ether, which are blockchain-based records that function like a dollar or a quarter or any other piece of currency in the real world. One is exchanged with another, and they have the same value no matter which one you have. A non-fungible token is something that's unique. It's a blockchain record that has been created that does not exchange one-to-one -one with others, but is instead unique. One of the analogies I sometimes use is that if you take a penny or a quarter, but if the mint were to misprint the penny or the quarter, then suddenly you have an item that is different from the rest, and collectors then value those particular misprinted items because of their scarcity. And so NFTs are a way to create digital scarcity, and what you end up being able to do is link an NFT, a non-fungible token, as a record to some other unique digital asset. So what exactly is Tarantino trying to sell as an NFT? 
it's not 100% clear from the advertising and the promotion that's been done around the NFT sale. I don't think it's entirely clear from the complaint that Miramax filed. It appears to be Tarantino's handwritten pages of scenes from Pulp Fiction. It's not clear to me whether they're all unique in some way. There's also apparently commentary that's going to be provided for him that's unique. It looks like there may have been a plan, and I don't know if this is still true, to do some sort of unique artwork as sort of the cover of the NFT or the image that goes along with it. Miramax immediately sued. What's the focus of the lawsuit? The primary focus is on the language of the contract between Tarantino and Miramax dating back to 1993. And there was a rights agreement under which Tarantino and Mark Fender transferred their rights in the film, which I think included, you know, all elements and all stages of development and production to Miramax. So obviously, in 1993, NFTs were not part of anyone's imagination, I don't think. And Tarantino's attorney argues that the director was acting within his reserved rights, specifically the right to screenplay production. In a court of law, how will they determine what that is? Typically, a court's going to look at the first at the contract language itself and determine whether or not the language on its face is clear. And if the language is clear, then that screenplay publication would cover creation of NFTs around these scenes or these script pages, then it would fall within his reserved rights which is probably more likely here. There's at least some question as to exactly what that phrase means. Then a court is going to have to look at the things courts look at to determine more ambiguous terms in a contract, the course of action between the parties, the other language in the contract, the sort of standard in the industry. And so here, that's, I think, what the court will end up looking at. There is a line of cases on new uses of work in the copyright world where And we've seen this at many junctures when new technology comes into play. And, you know, contracting parties could not have anticipated a new technology. Often those cases come down to how broad the language of the grant is and whether the parties can be seen to have contracted around sort of anything that comes up in the future. And we saw this in cases involving digital archives and things like that. So tell us about Random House v. Rosetta Books. Right. And that's exactly, you know, one of those cases. And I should say that there were cases long before that as well, when things moved from television and to feature film and things like that and video. But in the Random House v. Rosetta Books case, the question was whether the right to publish in book form, and that was the language in the contract, included electronic ebook rights. And in that particular case, the district court said that the language Uh, as written, was not broad enough to cover the new use. And then on appeal, the Second Circuit really sort of set a standard for how a fact finder needs to look at the contract language to determine whether the new use was contemplated. Now, I will say that I'm not entirely sure whether the new use cases will come into play that directly in the Miramax Tarantino case, because that case seems to be focused primarily on the screenplay publication language as opposed to new uses, but it could come up depending how the arguments go. What's the main question in the case going to be? To my mind, 
the primary question in this case is, does the term screenplay publication cover the sale of an NFT that is tied to parts of a screenplay? You know, clearly when Tarantino reserved his rights to screenplay publication, it meant something. It meant that he was reserving the right to do something with, with the screenplays. And, you know, I think in the normal sense, you would think that probably means taking that screenplay and selling copies of the whole screenplay on the market and publishing that screenplay to the market. Here, it's not clear, I don't believe, you know, what Tarantino is going to be doing with these NFTs. It looks like that sort of broader publication. If you were going to sell one or two or 10 NFTs around a particular set of screenplay pages. But I don't know that there's that much precedent yet that would tell us what the answer to that question is. Maybe you can answer this question that no one else has been able to answer for me. In some of the auctions involving millions and millions of dollars of digital art, in some of those, the copyright isn't transferred to the purchaser of the NFT. So what does the purchaser get besides bragging rights? In short, it is the bragging rights. But I think the best analogy would be to the sale of a really valuable piece of physical artwork in the sense that if I pay $20 million or $69 million for a, um, a painting and I buy that, I don't get the copyright when I purchase that painting in most cases, I simply get that one copy. It may be the original, it may be the only, or there may be prints made of it, and there may be copies everywhere. But when I buy that piece of physical artwork, I get that piece of physical artwork. There's a doctrine called the first sale doctrine under copyright law in the U.S., which says that in the physical world, when I sell something like a copy of a book or a, or a painting or a record album in vinyl, that any copyright interest that the seller has in that one instance of content goes away, and the user then has a right to sell that copy onward and do whatever they want to with it, essentially. Although you couldn't then make another copy of it and sell a copy, all you have is the right to sell it in a used bookstore and to alienate that one copy that you've for people who are going to buy or sell NFTs, what should you do to ensure that the rights that you think you're getting are actually the rights that you are getting? Right. And, I, and we advise clients on both sides of this question. And I think the short answer is you need to know very clearly what the terms of sale are in connection with the particular NFT sale. In some marketplaces, that may be something that you'll see in the description of the item itself in the sale. In some cases, you may be looking to the terms of use on the NFT platform website. But you know, in either case, whether you're a buyer or a seller, you need to be very clear on where those rights are found and what those, what those terms are. Thanks, Lance. That's Lance Kuntz, a partner at Claris Law. 
former President Donald Trump lost his appeal to the D.C. Circuit to override President Joe Biden's waiver of executive privilege over White House records in the January 6th Capitol riot investigation. But the Biden administration is siding with Trump in urging the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to scuttle a defamation lawsuit brought by advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. After Carol went public with her allegation that Trump sexually assaulted her in a New York department store dressing room two decades ago, Trump said she was, quote, totally lying and not my type. Judge Denny Chin appeared skeptical that Trump's words fell within his duties as a government employee as he questioned Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba. Who is he serving when, when he says something like, she's not my type? He was, is, that, is, is he serving the United States of America when he makes that statement? Absolutely, because he has to address the fact that this could not and would not have happened. He did not do it's it. It's not. It would have been one thing if he said, I didn't do it. But, but he, he goes way beyond that. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg News legal reporter. Eric, many were surprised with Biden's Justice Department siding with Trump. Yeah, I think when Biden was elected, a lot of people who were watching this attempted DOJ intervention sort of assumed that this would be one of the many Trump policy decisions that would be reversed by the new administration. So it was kind of a big surprise when the Biden administration said, we actually side with Trump. They said, we don't agree with what Trump said, but his denial of Ms. Carroll's claims were made as part of his job duties, and therefore he's protected by this law. It's called the Westfall Act, which protects government employees from litigation related to their job. And the Justice Department's lawyer said Trump made offensive comments in response to very serious allegations of sexual assault. I'm not here to defend or justify them. But how did he divorce the comments from the defense of the comments? To the Justice Department, they sort of boiled it down to Trump was denying an allegation made against him. The press was asking him about the allegations. He was responding in his own special way. So the Justice Department, based on their papers, they're looking at it as just protecting the office of the presidency, as often the DOJ does, in terms of being able to protect any president's right, in their view, to deny allegations like this without the threat of being sued for defamation. Trump's lawyer referred to Kyle Rittenhouse and asked, what are we going to do if Kyle Rittenhouse sues President Biden for calling him a white supremacist? Right. And I actually was not too surprised that she brought that up because it was sort of a current events comparison that was actually kind of a a good one in a way, because after Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two protesters at a Black Lives Matter rally last year in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and injured a third, in the aftermath of that, Biden put out a campaign video that Rittenhouse's then lawyers suggested that Rittenhouse was a white supremacist and threatened a defamation lawsuit against Biden, which never actually ended up happening. But it did raise the prospect of what would happen if he had been sued. And it's sort of a similar argument there, right? Trump said, she's not my type. That is the part of the statement that's offensive. Is it that he denied it at all, or is it the offensive nature of it? How are they parsing that statement? Well, that's a good question, because that did come up in the court hearing. And it got a little bit confusing at times, but I did clarify with Ms. Carroll's legal team afterwards that they do absolutely stand by the argument that even the denial itself was defamation, because the denial implies that she was lying. 
the additional parts, him claiming that she's not his type and that she was making these claims just to sell a book and that sort of thing, those make it more difficult in Carol's view to tie the denial to the president's job duties. So that's why they were parsing that. But they say that the denial itself was defamation. Listen to what Judge Guido Calabrese said about presidents in general. The fact is that the president often has done things which go beyond the law for purposes of the presidency. Almost every president has done it. You know, it's impossible to really get into a judge's head, but it does kind of hint at how at least that judge was thinking that there's always been a wide latitude for presidents to behave in a certain way. You know, he went on to point out that the big outlier in this type of behavior would be like Nixon lying for his own personal benefit rather than to protect the office of the presidency, and that that rises to the level of impeachment. You know, then he said something along the lines of that's a higher bar to reach. The decision here, if it goes against Carol, it's more than just losing a motion. The case would be lost. That's correct. If the Justice Department prevails here and is able to substitute itself for Trump as defendant in the case, then essentially the case will be dismissed because you can't sue the federal government for defamation. So the Westfall Act has been applied to Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, so the last three presidents. It seems to be invoked a lot. Yes, and even against Hillary Clinton and Senator Elizabeth Warren and other members of Congress, it's actually used fairly frequently. And even in some defamation cases, I believe there was one suit against Elizabeth Warren over something that she said about someone in an interview, and that case never made it to trial. It was dismissed under the Westfall Act. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. An Indian national who's lived in the U.S. nearly 30 years wants to take another shot at arguing that he isn't precluded from seeking a green card because he falsely said he was a U.S. citizen while getting a driver's license in Georgia. And the Supreme Court justices seem likely to side with him. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. What's the process for getting a green card? Well, the process for getting a green card depends on whether you're inside the United States or outside the United States, but let's just take for the purposes of this case that's before the Supreme Court, there's a two-step process if you're inside the United States called adjustment of status. And there, what you usually do is you file one application that says, I'm eligible for the visa I'm asking for, whether it's an employment visa or a family visa. And then at the same time, you file an application called an adjustment of status application, which says, and by the way, I'm not ineligible because of a ground of inadmissibility that would apply against me. And so there's about 50 grounds of inadmissibility in the immigration code that if you did any of those things wrong, even if you are eligible for the visa because you are the right kind of relative or you do have the right kind of employer petitioning for you, it wouldn't matter. You still couldn't get the green card. And so this Supreme Court case is about that second process, the adjustment of status process, and whether someone can appeal the decision that they're inadmissible, aka ineligible for adjustment of status, for whatever reason the Immigration Service has stated they're inadmissible for. So tell us about the case before the Supreme Court, which involves a citizen of India who's been living here for 30 years. Correct. This is a citizen of India who's lived in the United States for 30 years, and they're married and have three children. And this individual applied for a relief called 245I, which was something that existed before 2001, which for, you know, you could use the word legalization or amnesty or whatever, but it was a program that allowed people who didn't have legal status to regularize their legal status if they have a proper employer or a proper family member petitioning for them, even if they had been in unlawful status at the time of their application. And so this person goes through the process, but gets denied because they said that this person had what's called the ground of inadmissibility for false claim for U.S. citizens. And what that means is if a person who's not a U.S. citizen ever states in any way, shape, or form that they're a U.S. citizen, that's pretty much the worst thing you could do in the immigration code. That bans you from everything. And in this case, they said that this person marked yes in response to a Georgia driver's license application question that asked, are you a U.S. citizen? And so the immigration service here actually denies this person's application and states that this person can't get a green card because they lied about being a U.S. citizen. And so this person wants to appeal that determination, but is being told by the federal courts 
that the courts do not have jurisdiction to review whether this person lied on their Georgia application and whether that was a material lie, whether they meant to lie, or whether it was a mistake. And so that's what this case is all about. Did the immigration judge make a determination that Patel did lie? Because Patel said it was a mistake, but it's sort of hard to believe that you'd make a mistake about something like that. Well, so, correct. The immigration judge ruled against Patel and said that Patel was not credible in his explanation that it was a mistake. But the point is, Patel is seeking review from the 11th Circuit of that decision, saying that the immigration judge was wrong. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals says it does not have the ability to review that. But what they said was it's because nothing in an adjustment of status application is reviewable, as opposed to what Patel argued, which is, no, 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 only the discretionary decisions in an adjustment of status application are reviewable, meaning what happens is they do two steps of an analysis. First, they decide, is this person actually legally able to get a green card? And then second, even if they are, as a matter of discretion, should we give it to them? Maybe they had 50 arrests and no convictions, and so even though they're legally able to, you start asking, why did this person have 50 arrests? Or maybe they are doing some sort of other vile thing that's not covered by the grounds of inadmissibility, but under your discretion, you would deny it. And so what the arguments are, both by the government and by the Mr. Patel, is that only that discretion is what's not reviewable in the court. But the decisions regarding the factual claims in the case and the factual findings, those should be reviewable. And so that's what they wanted to review here. And so here, the federal government agreed with Patel and counsel had to be appointed to take the position of the 11th Circuit. Correct. And this has actually happened probably in the last 20 years, three or four times in the immigration world. So it's interesting. I don't know if this happens very often in other worlds, but it does happen in the immigration world because what happens is it's kind of funny where a foreign national will be placed in removal proceedings and they have sort of no say over um, the fact that they're in removal proceedings, that it's ICE who's placing them in removal proceedings. And only by the time that the case gets to the Supreme Court is it actually working its way through Department of Justice, Solicitor General's office, and sort of the scholarly attorneys in the world, where when they get the decision, they say, well, why are we defending this? Why, you know, this was a very bizarre position that I took during the litigation that now we're being asked to defend in the Supreme Court. Why are we defending this? And so during those times, it has happened that the government will actually take the side of the litigant, and then the court will need to do something in order to make sure that the lower court's ruling has someone who defended it, and so they'll appoint an amicus to do that. And so that's what happened here in this case. And the lower federal courts were split on this issue? Right. The lower federal courts are split. You have some circuits saying that You can review the decisions in an adjustment of status application, except for the truly discretionary, you know, at the end, do you give it, do you not give it? That's the only part that's not reviewable, as opposed to the 11th Circuit saying that because there's a discretionary component at the end, that means none of it is reviewable. 
And so there were some arguments today in the court about, well, in the end, if they can deny him for discretion, and that's what this judge wants to do, what's it going to matter in the end? But I think the court still focused on the fact that because there's this presumption of review in the statute, and it really makes sense to read it in this kind of bifurcated manner where non-discretionary things like law and facts and everything else get review and truly discretionary things don't get review. I do think some members of the conservative wing of the court seem to have that argument register with them. So it seems likely that Patel is going to win. Well, what it seems likely is he's going to win to get review of the decision. That does not mean Patel, in the end of the day, is going to get a green card, because if the lower court found him not credible as to his actual why he clicked on the citizenship part for his driver's license, it's going to be a hard slog in the Court of Appeals because the Court of Appeals doesn't have the benefit of the credibility determinations that are being made in the lower court. They can't assess the individual or any of that. So those are historically hard decisions to overturn, but at least the larger legal principle will withstand this 11th Circuit attack so that people who need this review, who actually can win, will be able to win moving forward. That was what seemed strange to me here, because you have someone on a trial judge level, let's say, when a trial judge makes certain determinations of fact, the appeals court can't really review those determinations. So if you have a judge here making a determination that he wasn't credible, what kind of information would you present to an appeals court to show he was credible? Right. You would have to say basically that no reasonable lawmaker would have found that conclusion based on what was submitted to them. And very rarely are you going to meet that. In the immigration world, where you do see this happen on occasion, and it's sad, but it's true, is where sometimes the actual judges on the immigration court will verbally express such an anti-immigrant viewpoint toward this individual in the case that then people start to question the objectivity of the actual judge in the case. They will say things that are completely inappropriate during the course of the litigation that isn't even like politically correct inappropriate. It's stuff that anybody would say. No sane judge would say something like this during a, during a hearing, that kind of stuff. So sometimes like that, you will see it reversed. But other than that, you're correct. You very rarely see it reversed. So how many people would this affect this decision of the Supreme Court? They asked this question a bunch of times during the argument, and nobody could seem to tell. And there was this belief, well, look, if there are about 100,000 of these cases a year, and there's about 87% get granted, how many people could this actually be? Is it 1,000? And the point is, we don't know. And also, there's a lot of people who may not file an appeal because they thought they were foreclosed from doing this. But even if it's a few thousand people a year, those are a few thousand people a year that would have that lifeline that wouldn't have it if the court rules against them. There, there is sometimes, and I don't know if it happened here, but definitely sometimes in these states that have automatic motor voter registration, you will see a situation where a foreign national will sign up for a driver's license and they'll automatically get signed up to vote. And then they've got to untangle that they didn't ask for that. 
So in this kind of case, it will be very useful to have that review in case there's a lot of confusion about what happened. Now, I don't think that's what happened in this particular case, but those motor voter situations are not that uncommon. So I want to turn to to bigger issues. How many of the Trump immigration policy decisions is the Biden administration following? Well, the main one that we're seeing now, and it's not being done on purpose, but it's being done because the court is requiring them to do it, is this concept of remain in Mexico. And this concept of remain in Mexico is fascinating now because the entire purpose of revoking the remain in Mexico policy was the Biden administration's memorandum stating that there's no way to do this in a humane manner. And so now what's interesting is, as they're being forced to implement it, and they're actually implementing it with legal counsel and with the International Organization of Migration, helping secure safety for people in Mexico, and all the kinds of things that they're doing because they're concerned about the safety of the people in this, it is potentially going to be a very interesting thing to see in the court. It's sort of all of these human rights elements that are being implemented as part of Remain in Mexico will actually undermine the argument now in court, such as it will essentially be a no good deed goes unpunished situation, and now it will be impossible to revoke the Remain in Mexico policy because the court can say, you see, there is a humane way to do this, the way you're doing it, so why do you need to revoke the policy? And so... This is going to be a very interesting thing to watch moving forward. And is the Biden administration still using the COVID excuse for not accepting? They're still using, yeah, they're still using Title 42 in cases where they're single adults, and those single adults are still working in their way into the system, and they don't have any sort of equities for why they would be paroled or let into the country. And I think you will see that until the lifting uh, in, in its totality of the COVID national emergency, which hasn't been lifted yet. So you still have this COVID national emergency. And I think until you see that get lifted, you're still going to see at least some number of people be excluded under the Title 42 authority. So I haven't heard that much in the last few weeks about the numbers of illegal immigrants coming into the country. Has that subsided a little Sure. Well, those numbers are lower and they have subsided. And that's because this isn't usually the time of year. There's sort of three things going on at the same time. One, this isn't usually the time of year where you see surges. Even in Texas, it actually gets quite cold. Uh, and so people don't usually start coming in December, November during that time period. So you do see uh, those numbers slipping and they've slipped for three consecutive months now. But also the fact that people are still being subjected to Title 42 and now the Remain in Mexico policy does mean you're going to start seeing these numbers decrease. Thanks for being on the show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And please join us every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time for the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.